Welcome to The Nine Line, your news and information source for healthcare-related issues impacting Southern Nevada veterans, and a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. And now, here's your host, Joshua Gray. Hi, and welcome to the Nine Line Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Gray, and today we are joined by two gentlemen who are very, very instrumental into everything that this hospital does without actually touching patient care or seeing any patients uh, in in their day-to-day duties. I am talking today with uh, Dr. Felix Acevedo, Jr., and Adrian Allen. They are our emergency managers, plural, here. They're both emergency managers, right? That's that's what yes, we sir. do here? Yeah. Yes, so, so um, you know, when, when we think about emergency management, right, like we have an emergency room here at the hospital, but it's not patient-oriented, the kind of emergencies you guys deal with. So just uh, to start with here, tell me a little bit about what emergency management actually is and what emergency management actually does. Well, Josh, that's a good question because even when we explain to our friends or family members what do we do, we say we're emergency preparedness coordinators, emergency management. They're like, oh, you work in the emergency room? No, we don't work in emergency room. We don't work in emergency department. What we pretty much do is we try to prepare the facility and the healthcare employees to be able to manage a threat that will impact our, our continuity of care. So our business is taking care of patients. So should something happen that would enable us to take care of those patients, that's when you call us. So we kind of dive into anything that disrupts patient care, and we don't manage it like you stated. All we do is we provide the people situation awareness, what plans we have in place, and we try to manage it by objectives. Make sure that we know what we have to do, who's going to do it, assign it to someone, give them a timeline, and then manage those timelines. It's just like project management on crack. That's pretty much how it, <laughs> how it boils down to. So when you talk about making these plans, right, who makes the plans? Because, uh, you know, as, as I've gone through my career in the Air Force and then I worked in the public sector for a little bit and now I'm here, you know, all of the plans seem to be pretty much the same. So is there like one big standardized plan on how to handle things? Like, how does all of this come together? Well, Adrian and I, we sit down and we support the community in what they do is a hazardous vulnerability assessment every year. And we look at the hazards throughout Clark County. Then we come back and we take our hospital and put them into those hazards. And then we go back to the subject matter experts. So right now we're working on the emergency room um, plan because we just did an exercise. We saw some gaps. We identified some gaps. So Adrian and I work with the emergency room department and we go back and say, okay, this is what the plan says. We really didn't do that during this exercise. What actually are we going to do? Can you explain a little bit about that, Adrian? Yes. When we work with uh, other departments and doing plans or work with departments to do their plans, we look at how we talk to each individual department and find out exactly what is it that they need to be able to evacuate their area or be able to move a patient in this area. If a utility failure happens, what is affected or negatively affected in that department, which we then go in with that, uh, with, with the information that they share with us and go in and say, well, engineering or safety, how can we actually continue to do operations or how can we get operations back up as quick as possible with this information that the staff is giving us? Okay, so 
you know, when it comes to like the 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 things that you're trying to foresee, you know, the the threats that that you call them, um, you know, when when I think about that kind of thing, I think like tornado or earthquake or hurricane, you know. But you just mentioned Adrian. You just mentioned the power going out, right? So so what are some of the more common things that you're trying to forecast out that could possibly happen here at a hospital? Um, that that maybe somebody like me wouldn't really like. What's on your plate? Well, we all know that earthquakes is the, in Nevada is one of our biggest vulnerabilities. The good thing about where well, there's not good things, but one of the highlights of having of earthquakes in Nevada is that most buildings in Clark County are built to withstand a 7.0 earthquake. So we know if the if the buildings shake, isn't they're not going to collapse like you see in third world countries? But you know. That's not the only vulnerability we look for. I mean, they could be vulnerabilities, man-made, or human, or, or, or natural disasters like you know earthquakes. We don't worry about tornadoes. We don't worry about hurricanes. We worry about extreme heat, you know, flash floods, and earthquakes. Those are our biggest natural disasters. But what we have to look at is things that are going to impact the, the healthcare system that are not man-made or that are not natural disasters. Something that's man-made. Something that's bioterrorism. So let's say somebody contaminates the water and we have no water. So we have no water, you know, pretty much we have to, we have 72 hours, three days maybe, to evacuate this hospital because we can't run this hospital without water. So our job is to prioritize. We can't just say everybody leave at the same time. So we have to make sure we prioritize what needs to leave first, what we can sustain with the little bit of resources we have. And we do have some resources, some backup water to be able to, sustain operations until we get more water in. That's, you know, worst case scenario. Good thing is Southern Nevada does a good job of maintaining and securing our water source because I don't want to want to panic and think that they're going to contaminate our water. Sure. Uh, in, in that example, you know, if the water was contaminated in the area, you know, that's something that everybody's dealing with. We're dealing with it. Clark County's dealing with it. City of North Las Vegas is dealing with it. Nellis Air Force Base is dealing with it. So, but the resources to do that and to deal with that would, would seem to me to be fairly limited. So how do you work with all of those state, local, federal partners? Uh, what's needed to kind of come together and kind of allocate who does what and who gets what and, and how things happen? Well, you know, we're, we're a federal agency, so we cannot task or be a burden to the community because we're a federal agency. However, we have a good partnership with our community. So Adrian and I, we sit on the Southern Nevada Hospital Preparedness Coalition. And with them, they understand what our capabilities are, and they also understand what our vulnerabilities are. We also understand what the capabilities and the vulnerabilities are throughout the community. So what will happen in a situation like that is, let's say we lose water source or the water is contaminated. Well, water allocation will be done by Clark County Office of Emergency Management through a process called the Multi-Agency Coordination Center, the MAC. So the MAC has a the, the, the hospital association or the hospital coalition there, and we're looking at, again, prioritizing what do we need first. Of course, Sunrise, I mean, excuse me, um, UMC being a, a level one hospital, is going to get resources first because they have the most critical patients, then Sunrise, and then down that, that, that pole, we also can rely on Dallas Air Force Base because we are a federal agency, so we can partner with them. So we have the luxury of working with the community, but we also have the luxury of partnering with the federal agencies like um, 
uh, Nellis Air Force Base. But we have a great relationship with our community partners, so they know what we can do because, in all fairness, we have probably more capabilities than most hospitals because we are a federal agency. So even during COVID, people were coming to us, hey, can you spare this? Can you spare that? Can we borrow this? Can we borrow that? Instead of us going to them, they were coming to us. So in the future, if we need something, we hope they reciprocate those allocations. Okay. So, Adrian, I'm going to put you on the spot here just just a little bit. Um, you know, it, it seems like a lot of this job could entail, like, fortune telling, basically. It's like, you know what you know, you know what you don't know, and then trying to figure out what you don't, what you don't know that you don't know, right, when it comes <laughs> to disaster prep, right? Um, what's it like having to kind of sit there and kind of just think about, well, where's my vulnerabilities, right? Like, what vulnerabilities don't I know about? Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> like Felix said, we are a part of the Southern Nevada Coalition. And as a community, we get together and discuss the potential vulnerabilities in our, our town. And they're rated based on the probability of them happening. So, for example, there's very limited probability of a hurricane hitting Clark County. So I'm not concerned about a hurricane, but I am concerned because it has happened an active shooter. I am concerned about an earthquake because it happens. I'm concerned about uh, wildfires and the and the smoke, the the air quality because of smoke in other uh, other areas like Los Angeles and or California and Washington, Oregon, Arizona. So the unknown things like COVID, which we dealt with, all you have to all you really try to do is just try to hope that you have some form of preparedness for to just be able to deal with a um, pandemic of that sort. So we had Ebola that we dealt with. So we prepared the facility for a respiratory or, or a, um, we prepared the facility with having PPE and things like that for respiratory, also for droplets, anything, you know, that you could potentially see just happening. And you just hope that what you bought and what you have purchased and have in stock is actually what is is used to prepare yourself for. But as far as things of the unknown, I think you just try to prepare for as much as what you know is going to happen and hope that if something unknown happened like COVID did, we have the equipment and the supplies and people in place to be able to address that uh, that vulnerability. So, for I mean, for something like that, you know, there's a baseline planning for a pandemic. Yes. And then whatever it may end up being you're just kind of filling in the gaps correct in between them correct okay because we i think during uh march april time frame of 2020 every week we were trying to figure out okay we should be done with this in a couple more days and as the numbers started increasing we we're like okay we need to find something else to do oh this is it's looking like this oh my it's looking like that do we have anything in place in our facility to be able to curve it or even slow the process down and um I think the advantage that we had was the Ebola scare. It, it allowed us to build up our our, um, our pandemic stock and to be able to uh, help the facility to be able to do the patient care that we need to do as much as possible. So Felix, from, from your perspective, when you have an event like COVID where it's a brand new disease, right? It's not like Ebola. Like Ebola has been known for quite some time. Um, you know, and and COVID is a SARS derivative kind of disease, but we really didn't know that much about it. So how much of your job then is trying to parse out all of the information? You're getting a lot of information 
you know, and it's very fragmentary, and, and you don't know how reliable it is because some of it's coming from overseas, some of it's coming from here, some of it's just people freaking out, <laughs> right? And, mm-hmm. and and saying whether it's you know something they heard or, or rumor control. So how does that how does that impact your job when you have to then turn around and be kind of responsible for filtering that information throughout this in this facility so people can make decisions. So like Adrian stated, you know, we had some robust plans. When the bird flu first came out, everyone created a pandemic plan. So throughout the country, everyone had a good pandemic plan. They tabletopped it. They, they, they studied it. They rehearsed it. Then Ebola came out. But what we learned with Ebola was it, there was a lot of people had the fear of the unknown. So what I learned is people are always going to be afraid of what they don't know. So instead of having an Ebola plan or a SARS plan, we had a highly infectious disease plan. So a highly infectious disease, no matter what it is, no matter what we don't know, it doesn't matter because you're protected for any highly infectious disease. So if you follow the framework of that plan, again, every plan has to be adapted for whatever the situation may be, but it gives us a framework. And when we do any plans, we, be, we create frameworks. And what I try to tell people that are living or executing the plan is don't worry about the left, right, left, the dotting the I and crossing the T. Worry about the framework. What is it that we have to do adapted to what our needs are? Because what, like Adrian stated, Ebola changed so much that, you know, we were going right one day. And the next day we were going left and then we were jumping up and then we were, you know, doing low cross. So it's, <laughs> it's, it, it, it was so robust that, you know, you know, we, like Adrian said, we, it got to the point where we were like, when is this going to be over? Is it going to be over? Now we come to the conclusion it's never going to be over. This is just a new norm. Let's just learn to live with it. So do you think, and, and this is for either of you, do you think it's better then, uh, based on those kinds of experiences, to have 20 highly detailed plans or five plans that are just kind of very general but give you the opportunity to be more flexible? A general plan that gives you the opportunity to be flexible but that looks at the worst case scenario. So our highly infectious disease plan tells you this is the level PPE you need if it's airborne, if it's droplets. If it's not, then you can lower this, but it gives you the framework. So again, we were fortunate enough because we were so robust doing Ebola that when uh, COVID hit, we already had activated our team. We already had literature out. We already had checklists out. So when that first patient walked through the door, we were ready. So because we used the highly infectious disease framework to manage that event. Again, you can't you can't fight people's fears. And what I've learned in this business is no matter how robust your training is or your plans are, you can't fight fear because people are going to be afraid of the unknown. You know, and I've I've got a question for you, a follow-up about fighting fears and and things like that. Um, But we got to take a quick break, and then I'm going to get to that right after this. You're listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. We'll be back with more right after this. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. 
Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Question, what will you find on all over-the-counter or OTC medicine packages to help you choose the right drug and use it safely? The answer, the drug facts label. This label lists the medicine's active ingredients and purpose, how much to take, and warnings you should know before using it. Remember, even OTC medicines you buy without a prescription can cause side effects you don't want. So follow the information listed on the drug facts label. For more information, visit fda.gov slash drug facts label. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Welcome back to The Nine Line, Southern Nevada's source for veteran-related healthcare news and information. Here's your host, Joshua Gray. Welcome back to The Nine Line. I'm your host, Joshua Gray, joined by Felix Acevedo and Adrian Allen. They work in our emergency management section here at the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. Uh, so gentlemen, uh, as a VA facility, obviously, we're first and foremost concerned with with healthcare of veterans, right? Um, but a lot of the things that you guys do touches healthcare without really directly being involved in in patient care, right? Some of the some of the the, the guidelines that that are out there for safety, um, whether it's disruptive behavior or anything like that, that all kind of flows from uh, from from your kind of your work. Um, so what's your your method to kind of get buy-in from folks to to take you guys seriously and and listen to what you guys have to say when maybe somebody's really i'm more focused on seeing this patient and you know i'll I'll do your training later or something like that i think the um one of the great things about nurses and a lot of doctors is they chose to be nurses and doctors and they love doing patient care and our selling point for at least for me, is we express how much that this is going to be valuable for patient care, more so than I'm just teaching you something for the sake of teaching you something because I need help. But if we let them know that the ultimate picture or the ultimate goal here at our facility is patient care and the, what's best for our veterans. And if I say we can do something that is beneficial for our safety, your safety, and the patient's safety, a lot of the staff typically buys in and, and is supportive of being able to do whatever it is that we need for patient safety and patient care. I'm not for sure if I'm on I'm wrong about that, but I think in the conversation I've had with people, that's the reason why a lot of the ones I've talked to say this is why they, they love working with us and doing the things with us. And Adrian's on the right track. What we try to do is we try to emphasize that everyone is part of the whole community. After Hurricane Katrina, we learned as a nation that everyone's responsible for preparedness, including you, including me. And so we start with every training we do is that you are responsible for yourself. And by being responsible for yourself and preparing yourself, you prepare yourself at work because we can't take care of our jobs if we don't take care of our families. So that's the first selling point. And then we tell them, you know, stories. You know, one of the great stories that I talk about is when Hurricane Maria happened in Puerto Rico. The medical center in the VA was the only shining light in the whole island. It was the only place that had backup power. 
So everybody was going there to eat. So who had first priority? Staff members that were prepared to go to work. They got fed. You didn't go to work. You didn't get fed. So you, you use selling points like that by being prepared, being part of the whole community. You don't only impact yourself. You impact your family. And you also impact the veterans we take care of. And like Adrian says, people have a sense. The key thing is, and I, what I like to, like to emphasize is muscle memory. Practice breeds perfection. So let's practice during exercise so you can build that muscle memory so when the time comes and the bell rings, you're ready and you're not asking, what should I do? You should be doing something. Emergency, emergency management has kind of always struck me as one of those jobs that, you know, you prepare, but you really hope you don't have to put it into practice, right? Um, obviously, everybody's dealt with uh, COVID worldwide here in the last uh, the last couple of years. But, you know, there, there might be an emergency manager somewhere in you know, in, in South Dakota that, you know, they, they never go through anything. Right. Um, and then not only have we dealt with COVID, but we had October 1st and, and we've had some other, some, some other issues here. Um, so when you look back at all of those things, knowing that you're in a job that, you know, prepare for the, be- prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Um, what kind of goes through both of your minds looking that looking back at like all of the things that we've been through? Well, I look at resiliency. I, I think we're fortunate to have a culture of preparedness. I, one of the luxuries that I have was I created this program because I was the first emergency manager assigned to this facility because I help open this facility. So we built a culture of being ready for something to happen and hope that it doesn't happen. And it's breeding that culture. And, that, you know, and it's not only through people that you know, are in the emergency management committee, but service chiefs. You know, the individual, everyone has a role. So when I, when I talk about that whole community, you know, it's not only about doctors and nurses. Yeah, they, you know, nurses care for patients, doctors treat patients, but you know, that business administration service staff brings that patient in. You know, engineering provides us a facility for us to manage that patient. So everyone has a role. And what we try to do is to emphasize that during a disaster, if you're not ready, your role's gonna magnify because unlike any other agency, we don't close our doors. The fire department does not need to work in a firehouse to put out fires. The <laughs> cops do not protect and serve in a precinct. They do it out on the street. We don't have that luxury. We ain't going nowhere. In fact, we're probably one of the only agencies that's going to grow as far as work because everyone's going to come to us during a mass casualty event, just like October 1st. There was 1,098 hospital visits that night from 10 o'clock to 10 o'clock, from 10 o'clock at night to 10 o'clock in the morning. 1,098 hospital visits. Well, they weren't prepared for No one was prepared for No one anticipated it. But because our community has that resiliency, we were able to survive stuff like that. So that's what I try to emphasize to people is that preparedness that it could happen. It will happen. Built that muscle memory by practicing and being ready. So resiliency. We're going to get really we're going to get really uh, kind of meta here and, and philosophical here for a second. Is that something can you train resiliency or is that something that's kind of exposed by hardship and is a result of preparedness? 
I, I think it's something ex that is exposed by an experience. Um, you can't you, you, you can't see resiliency to experience it. You know, we, we, we would not know if we would survive in October 1st till you survive October 1st. We would not know if we would survive a pandemic till we survive a, pa a pandemic. But I think we test, we, we, we've been tested. I mean, you know, bef you know a, a lot of people forget that right before October 1st, we had that suspicious package that we had to evacuate the third floor for. So again, incident command activated, we were resilient because we were able to start normal operations again the next day. We limited patient impact, that disruption of care that I talked about earlier. So it's the resiliency is when the bell rings, leadership has the confidence to come to emergency management and say, what do we need to do? What, what, what's going on? and what's the impact to the healthcare system. And all we do is provide them guidance. We don't run incidents, we don't, we don't manage anything. We just say, this is what we know, this is what we, and this is the assets we have, and these are the resources we can get you. What do you need? And we let the people that treat patients, that care for patients, that manage buildings, that get the appointments done, we give them what they need to do that in a multifold facet because they're gonna have to do it in a different way. And for us during COVID, Instead of having more people to help us, we had less people because we had so many call-outs. We had so many people sick, and we had that fear, I'm not going to work because I might get sick. So what's it like living in a, in a world and, and, and doing a job where the only validation of your work really comes when something bad happens? Like, you, you don't want to hope for a pandemic you don't want to hope for an October 1st, but that's really the only chance you get to see that you're, you're, you're all of the preparedness that you've been, you've been preaching and all of the things that you've been preparing people for actually pays off. So what's it like living in, 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 that, kind of a, in that kind of a world? I disagree with that assessment, Josh, because okay. I think when we do exercises and we rehearse, we try to do our exercises as real as possible with mannequins or with actual live people. And when we rehearse these concepts, we see what our, our, our objectives are. Did we meet those objectives? That's what gives us that resiliency because not only do we know what our strengths are, but we also know what our areas of improvement. So it gives us that validation that A, we're doing a good job. Because if we had a major exercise, I mean, you saw the exercise we had a few months ago with the community, if that would have flopped, I would have went home and cried the next day because it flopped. Fair. You know, Fair. I, you know, it, my job was to make sure that our staff was ready and prepared and they came out in droves. It was to the point that I said, man, I'm going to have to send some people home because we had too many people. But that's that resiliency I talk about. That's that commitment, that culture we built that people say, I'm going to the exercise because we need to practice. We need to be ready. Sure, but isn't there also, you know, and I'm not, not trying to be confrontational here, yes, but like, are. isn't there also like, and, and I've asked you about this before in interviews where like, you know that exercise is happening. You said you had too many volunteers, right? Yeah. You didn't know October 1st was going to happen. And so nobody, you had normal staffing. Everybody thought it was going to be just a, just another day, right? So, you know, where's, I guess, where's the, uh, the middle ground there between having an exercise where everybody knows exactly what's going to happen when and then an, an unexpected event like, like an October 1st? I think you said it a few minutes ago, that's where the resiliency comes in. 
there's a preparedness culture that has us prepared to do these exercises and built that muscle memory. The resiliency is gives us the ability to overcome the devastation and be able to operate the next day or the following day. And that's that's the difference between being that culture of preparedness and having that resiliency to be doing it. So one thing that I'm confident of is because we've been able to rise to the occasion many times is that we have a good cadre of people that are going to come up and they're going to say, put me in coach, what, where do you need me? No matter what they're doing, no matter what their job is, I even think you, Josh, will come and say, Felix, <laughs> where do you need me? Where do you want my camera at? <laughs> Perfect. And, you know, and this is something I've asked you a couple of times before, because I remember back before the COVID pandemic, when we would use our annual flu shot um, point of dispensing exercise as a way to practice what we would do if we had to do a max vac- vaccination for a pandemic. And I remember asking you, I'm like, Felix, I'm looking around at the line here and everybody's laughing and joking and having a good time. Is this really good practice for this? Um, and it turns out that, you know, you were very vindicated in, in how the pods worked. The pods for, for COVID worked exactly the same as they worked for the flu shot. And I'm like, man, if there's a real pandemic, people are going to be coming in here with their hair on fire and, and panicked and, and crazy. Um, but, you know, going back to kind of what I was talking about before the break, this is where we get to it. You know, you managed to kind of train the fear out of people um, to, to get them ready for a, something like a, a pandemic. Now, granted, COVID, you know, as as pandemics go, it's not 28 days later. Right. We're not it's not the walking dead where something's sweeping the nation in five days. Um but we managed to get everybody prepared for exactly what we were looking to do when we had the COVID vaccination pods, and, and it all went smoothly. And you answer, you answer your own question. That's that vindication. Because when we, first of all, it was an honor to be selected one of the first VA facilities to give out the vaccine. Second, it was an honor that the medical center director asked me to manage the pod for the vaccine because he could have gave that to any clinical person. Um, and lastly is... If I got a dime for every person that walked through that pod and say, Felix, you knew this was coming. You were getting us ready. I'd be a rich man right now because we emphasize this can happen. And when it happened, and that's why I talk about it builds that culture. Now people know, you know, if Felix is practicing this, this might happen because he practiced this pod thing he used to call. They used to call it the Felix exercise. Now everybody knows it's a pod and what a pod is. <laughs> now they know, you know. We, we need to take this a little bit more serious. Yeah. It wasn't a special event. It was just another pot. It right? was just and, another And that's pot. the whole point of, of, of doing something like that. The, the practicing of the flu pod allowed us to do three pods last year or in 2020 without any kind of major issues. When you had veterans coming in in the droves, hundreds a day coming in, for vaccines, we we did the antigen antibody testing, mm-hmm. and where we were having blood drawn, and we were able to accomplish this because the one thing going back to something I said earlier, actually something Felix said earlier, is the put me in coach mentality that we do have here, and I think a lot of people because we've exercised it so much, they're like I want to see what this was really like. So um, there's there's a, a real pandemic going on. We kept hearing about this pandemic coming. Now I want to see what everything we've done, we want to do it. And 
because of our training and all the prep, constant preparedness, people weren't afraid to go in into work. People weren't afraid and, you know, they were there was some fear because we didn't know what was going on. But people weren't afraid to go in and say, I'm here to help. And and it was because of the preparedness. It was because of the relationships that we've developed and and the constant supporting and, and supporting and being supported by our hospital as well as our community that you wanted to go in and you wanted to help out. You wanted to do whatever you could to make sure that our veterans, the community, everyone that that looks up to us, that looks towards us, look towards us for help. They were getting the help that they needed. And I just think everybody wanted to be the person that saved someone's life that during this time. And, and again, we go back to the planning piece. We had a framework of doing a point of dispensing. They didn't have to be flu. It didn't have to be polo. It don't have to be COVID. It don't have to be monkeypox. Whatever it is, insert the virus, insert the vaccine, and take out the framework, and it will work. And like Adrian said, we were able to do the antigen test. We were able to provide flu shots. We were able to provide vaccines. So it's the framework of the plan that we have that we're able to maneuver it, adapt to it, and create the results that we want. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, it's always nice to know that we've got folks like you kind of on, on guard and, and getting us all ready for whatever else may come. So it's been a great, uh, great conversation having you guys on here. Felix, I always love chatting with you, man. It's always wonderful. So Likewise. just want to thank both of you for, for taking the time to be on today. All right. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Not a problem. Folks, you've been listening to The Nine Line. For Felix and Adrian, I'm Joshua Gray. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to The Nine Line, a production of the VA Southern Nevada Healthcare System. For more information about what the VA is doing for Nevada's veterans, check out our official webpage at www.lasvegas.va.gov or follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash lasvegasva. Thanks for listening.